Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by Chef Matthew Meeker. He is currently located in Dallas, Texas, just outside the city. He's been actually doing a lot of farming recently there. Previously, though, he worked at Bastion. He worked at Butcher and Bee in Nashville. He also worked uh, at the Continental, helped them with kind of the opening team and developing that. A uh, restaurant before that came online too as well. He even had a pop-up restaurant that he ran for a little bit. He spent some time at the Peninsula in Nashville. He wound up over in New York for a little bit and then wound up out in Dallas area, kind of where he is now. He recently did a pop-up kind of guest chef stint, guest chef dinner over at Nunsuch, which is a restaurant in Oklahoma City. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, check out their Instagram, but it's pretty wild to see a restaurant doing what they're doing in Oklahoma City. If you've never been to Oklahoma City, there's not much there. Yes, they do have a basketball team. Obviously, you have the Oklahoma City Bombing Memorial, and then you have kind of this river walk. Bricktown area. Uh, there's a minor league baseball team there and, and stuff like that. But there's not a whole lot of uh, high-end like culinary restaurants uh, there. So it's pretty wild to see something you know like that existing there. And he was a, one of the guest chefs, did a guest chef dinner there. Brian Baxter did one from the Capard Seat too as well. And there's a handful of other people, famous chefs, and they usually continue to do them. But wanted to have Matthew on just because he's worked at some of the restaurants that we've eaten at in Nashville and his food looks amazing. He kind of reposts some stuff over his culinary career still to this day as he kind of looks for his next uh, journey, adventure, opportunity, kind of what comes next. But he's been doing some farming and stuff, which is pretty cool to kind of follow along with him kind of getting into that space and figuring out growing different ingredients and what all goes into that and just kind of filling out his repertoire of things that he'll probably use towards his next venture, whatever it is, whatever restaurant he winds up working at, if he opens his own place or whatever. So we kind of talk about all that stuff, but you know, that's kind of wanted, wanted to have him on. So it's just a cool conversation with a cool dude who's down to do it. And uh, that's kind of half of what this podcast seems to be is just cool people being like, yeah, sure. That sounds fun. And uh, then they jump on the microphone and we just have a conversation about their career and food and stuff. So you can follow him on Instagram Pretty simple account to follow. It's just at Matthew Meeker. It's Matthew with one T, not two. So it's at Matthew.Meeker. You can follow us on Instagram too as well, at SpoonMob. Uh, check out our website, SpoonMob.com. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. Stitcher is shutting down. So if you do use that platform, make sure you switch to something else. You have till I think the end of August before that shuts off. But we're on Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, obviously all the smaller ones, um, Pocket Cast, Podcast Republic, anything that plays podcasts, you can pretty much find us on. If for some reason you can't find us, just shoot us a message through the contact portal on the website or via email and uh, let us know what you're trying to find us on and why we're not there. If it's not updated, the most recent episode or something, we'll take a look at it, but everything should be good to go. I always pretty much monitor that stuff uh, continuously. But the website also, in addition to the contact portal where you can write in, there's chef profiles up there. So everybody we've had on the podcast, uh, they have their own landing page. So link to the episode that they were on, food photos, wine photos, uh, you know, if they were a cheesemonger or a fish distributor, whatever. If whatever photos we have from their business up there, we usually make their way to Instagram, but it sometimes takes a little while. And uh, all the contact info where you can find them, usually to their Instagram. And the Instagram can kind of take you to their website or, or what have you too as well. We usually kind of mention that too in the show notes. If you're looking for their website or whatever, it's usually in there. Yeah, so check that out. We always kind of keep it up to date um, with bits of news that come out about somebody since they've been on the podcast or whatever. So make sure you check that out. But uh, without any further delays, here is my conversation with Chef Matthew Meeker, who you can currently find on Instagram and located out 
in the Dallas, Texas area. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day to jump on, chat about your career and everything. First, I think discovered you through Instagram, uh, probably like a lot of people, you know, you spend a lot of time in Nashville and working at different restaurants and stuff. And I think you're now in New York, right? You're in Brooklyn. So I'm actually in Texas now. I was in Brooklyn for a while. I was Nashville, Brooklyn, now to Texas. It's been a crazy year, year and a half or so. Well, I want to get to what you're doing now because I think the last thing that I knew of, you did a, a guest chef stint at uh, Nunsuch in Oklahoma City. I think that was after your pop-up and everything, and then kind of been doing some other stuff. So I want to get into all that, kind of what you're doing, uh, what the plans are. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody, kind of how they first got into the industry. So how did you kind of first get interested in cooking? Was it just through family? Was it working in restaurants during high school? Like how did all that materialize for you? So I grew up in a really small town uh, in West Tennessee, a town called Huntingdon, uh, about 3,000 people. And my family, lots of cooks, my family, my mother, my grandmother, aunts, uncles, we always, I always grew up around food, always loved eating food and was always in the kitchen. The kitchen was sort of the focal point or like the communal uh, room in the house, right? So I just grew up around food. I was really interested in cooking as a kid. Um, I got to cook with my family a lot, a lot of really great cooks in my family as well. But I sort of had this idea in my head uh, that I wanted to go to culinary school uh, after high school which I kind of wrote off as a pipe dream. I, I did fairly well academically in school. Um, you know, society sort of tells you if you do well in school, you keep going to school forever and ever and ever, and you become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. So I felt like, felt inclined that that was the, the course that was predetermined for me to take. So after I graduated high school, um, I was studying, studying sports medicine, which was cool. I had a good time doing it. I was in school for about two years, but I just wasn't super passionate about it, man. I, I felt like I was being told what to do. I felt like it was something that I had to do and it wasn't something that I actually wanted to do. And so I ended up dropping out of school, but much to my, my parents' dismay. And I moved to Nashville. That time I was living in Clarksville, Tennessee, uh, 19 years old. Uh, I'd done a lot of undergrad stuff before school. So it was a couple years in, but I'd only been there for about a year. Moved to Nashville and I got a job. It was funny. I was actually looking for landscaping jobs on Craigslist because I moved to Nashville with no job. And I was like, man, I don't know what what am I going to do now? Uh, I was looking for landscaping jobs on Craigslist. An ad popped up uh, for Butcher and Bee in Nashville. They were hiring uh, for a prep cook. And so I applied for the job. I had no idea, absolutely no idea what the dynamics of working in a professional uh, restaurant, a kitchen was, was like. So I showed up for the first day. I, I went to Walmart and bought like a white shirt and, you know, black pants and like the, the cheapest black shoes they had. And I had a stage. I didn't know what a stage was. They just told me to come in for a stage. And I was like, awesome. I'm just going to show up. You know, I think a lot of times showing up is, is 90% of the battle. So I showed up uh, for the stage for prep cook job. I cut off the tips of both my thumbs during the stage. I was bleeding everywhere. It was, it was a huge mess. I almost passed out. I was terrified, just utterly terrified being in this environment, but also loved it. I was so enthralled by everything that they were doing there. And they ended up offering me the job after I, I cut, after I cut my thumbs off. It was, um, we like wrapped them up or whatever. And I didn't want to leave. They like tried to get me to leave. And I was like, no, no, no I don't want to leave. I want to stay. You know, I'm fine. I'm fine. I, I want to stay here and, and, and see what you guys are doing and try to help. So they ended up hiring me after that. And I started as a prep cook at Butcher and Bee and ended up working my way up as a line cook and got to help with the expo and, and doing these different things. I was there for about a year and a half with um, Chris De Jesus was the chef de cuisine at the time and Brian was the, uh, the executive chef and it was really I think that was the best possible place that I could have started cooking at because they were very 
Brian always hires a lot of, I think, kind of green cooks and is very willing to teach cooks. And I needed, I needed to be taught what to do, right? I had no idea what I was doing. It was such a good, healthy, welcoming, constructive environment. The food is absolutely delicious. But yeah, man, I was looking for a landscaping job and, and somehow ended up at, at Butcher and Bee in Nashville. So it worked out really cool. Now, you mentioned possibly considering to go into culinary school. So why did you never follow through with that? Brian Weaver um, is a uh, chef co-owner um, at Butcher and Bee. And I asked him after I'd been there for maybe four or five months, cooking for four or five months. And I asked Brian, I was like, do you think it would be a good idea for me to go to culinary school, you know, to leave here, leave this job, go to culinary school? He, in a, a very polite way, sort of discouraged me um, from doing that. He was like, you know, you don't need to learn how to cut an onion. You don't need to learn how to make stocks. Like, we're doing all that here, right? Like, why would you pay to, to learn how to do these things when we're paying you to learn how to do them? And that was kind of like eye-opening to me, right? And it, I think it's really interesting in this industry that we're able to learn and get paid by learning. You don't necessarily have to go to school for it. I think a lot of industries, you know, you have to get formal training beforehand. You can't necessarily learn on the job. But yeah, I was kind of discouraged from doing that. And I'm, I'm super glad that I didn't. You know, a lot of some of the best chefs that I know went to culinary school and some of the worst went to culinary school. So I think it's, it's not one size fits everything. I'm glad that I didn't waste money going to culinary school personally. I always ask this to everybody who's a chef who comes on. But so now knowing what you know, having gone through your career up till now, encountered people that have done both, what would you say to somebody who's working in your kitchen? You know, they're like, hey, I want to be a professional chef, own my own restaurant one day. Do you think I should go to culinary school or not? What would you tell them? I think I would tell them, I don't know, do what they want to do. If they think it's, it's a good fit for them, if they have the ability and the funds to go to culinary school, <clears throat> I don't think it's necessary at all. I think it, it I think I would politely try to discourage them from, from going, honestly. I don't think there's anything that's taught in culinary school that you can't learn working in a good restaurant. And I actually think you, you learn for me and my style of cooking is, is very, out of the box, I guess it's it's not copy and paste cooking. I don't think there's one way to do anything. I think there's a thousand different ways to get to whatever outcome you want. And I think culinary school teaches a very rigid, this is how we do this every single time. This is the only way to do this, which I think kills creativity when you're told that there, this is the only possible way to do this. And this is the right way. And this is how we've been doing it forever. I think it's important to sort of question things and you know, ask why, right? Why do we do it this way? Why why couldn't you do it this way? And to kind of learn those things on your own and maybe discover some different ways to get there. I think like some techniques, some people like other techniques. And as long as the outcome is, is what you intended on it to be, I don't think it matters how you get there. Did you have a moment when you were in college, you're going for kind of sports medicine, like you mentioned, it, you knew you weren't really into it, but did you have a, a singular moment or anything that you look back upon and you're like, that's kind of the moment where I decided yeah, I want to go in the culinary arts and everything and, and leave behind kind of sports medicine. Yeah, I think it was the, the end of, of my second spring semester. I got to the end of the semester. I had, I had flunked most of my classes because I was just disinterested. I just didn't go to class, right? Like it, it wasn't because I couldn't do the curriculum. I just was so disinterested in what I was having to sit through. And, you know, I was sitting through all these classes that had absolutely nothing to do with what I was paying money to go to school for. And, and I just thought it was ridiculous. I just thought it was absolutely asinine that I was having to sit through these lectures that I cared nothing about to get a degree in something that I also didn't really care that much about, right? I think it was just kind of this this culmination of realizing that I was doing what I felt like I was 
told to do, doing what I felt like I had to do. Um, and it wasn't what I wanted to do in my life at that point that I made a decision, decision to do something that I wanted to do and something that I felt passionate about and wasn't doing things that I was told I had to do, felt like I was told I had to do. So when you're at Butcher and B, they wind up, I think, eventually opening a, a second location in Charleston. Did you ever work there at all or was that after your time? No, Charleston was actually the first one. Uh, Nashville was the second second location, but I've never been to Charleston, man. It's always been on, on my bucket list. I would love to go maybe one day. So after Butcher and the Bee, I think you wind up at Husk, right, in Nashville. So what led to that decision? Was that a conscious decision? You wanted to go work there or you just wanted to experience something else? You knew somebody there that was like, hey, you should apply. Like, how did that all kind of materialize? Yeah, so Husk at that point in time, the time that I went to Husk, I think like the year or two before that, Husk was really, really influential and still is very much to say. This is one of the most quintessential Nashville restaurants, I think, but it was kind of in its glory days, right? That was uh, when when Nate Leonard, Brian Baxter were there. Um, Sean was still there. Like with Instagram and social media, you see all these this gorgeous food that these chefs were making. And I was still very much a young green cook at that point in time. But I think I was just enthralled by by the food that was being made. There was super creative. I loved Southern cooking, uh, you know, growing up in the South. There was a short period of time that I felt like Southern food was sort of trashy, low-class, peasant food that people, rednecks ate, you know, these cans of beans out of, you know, a can. And that's what Southern food was to me, right? That's, that's what I thought. Having grown up in the South, I think part part of that is I, I never felt at home where I grew up at. Uh, and I, I always sort of felt like an outcast and I wanted to get as far away from that as I could, right? And that included the cuisine that I grew up eating. But after spending a little bit in Nashville and cooking at Butcher and Bee and being able to eat these things, I used to eat husk all the time. And it was not what I grew up eating, right? Like it was quintessential Southern food, but done so, so differently, so creatively. And I really loved the emphasis they had on, on their farmers, uh, the purveyors they worked with. And it was just, it just interested me. It was, a, it was a different take on food that I grew up eating. And it was in a way that was very interesting to me and very delicious. And I felt like there was a lot, lot to learn uh, from the chefs there at the time. I felt like it would be a really good learning experience. Most of my decisions as far as what restaurants I've been at have, have been based on seeing chefs doing things that I want to learn how to do, right? When you kind of land the job there, you get in the kitchen there, what is that dynamic like? I think around this time, Nashville's food scene is just kind of starting to be kind of on the upswing. Like Husk was a, a big catalyst of that. But, you know, you go into this kitchen, you never worked there before. It's kind of a infamous restaurant in the city at that time. What is that feeling like? Is it everybody kind of looking at you like, oh, here's another guy. Let's see if he makes it a week. Like, how does that kind of work? It was an interesting time when I Baxter had just left and went to Bastion to check the cuisine there. Um, Nate was still there, but he was on his way out. He was being replaced uh, by Katie Koss, who I worked under the whole time that I was there. Katie was the, the executive chef there. And so there was a lot of kind of staff rotation at that time, right? I think anytime you have new managerial staff in the kitchen, you inevitably We'll have a, a decent amount of turnover and the rest of the staff. So it was kind of a, a good time, I think, to, to walk in there as a new guy because there were other new faces. Everyone that came to Hus, I think, was very excited to work at Hus, which was a, a cool thing to, to sort of witness and be a part of. It wasn't just a, another job for most people. It was, it was really somewhere that they wanted to be at. But yeah, there's a lot of, lot of anxiety, a lot. I've, and, perpetually anxious. I feel like I'm always, <laughs> I'm always afraid. 
I'm going to fail because I, I hold myself this really high standard and I, failure is like the, the scariest thing for me. But it's something that, you know, if you don't fail often, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. You're not trying hard enough. Yeah, it was a scary time. It's super scary time. Husk was a monster of a kitchen, man. It was such a beast. It was just, there's like three fires going at any point in time all throughout the kitchen and outside. There's tons and tons of staff, three different kitchens throughout the building. And it was just that there was a lot of, of uh, sort of sensory input uh, coming from, from Butcher and Bee, which also was a, you know, a huge, huge kitchen as well. Good size kitchen. But yeah, man, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, but uh, I think everyone Everyone there at that time was very welcoming. We all kind of had the same goal in mind, or I think as long as the team has the same goal and are goal-oriented, we kind of become a part of that and this happens, you know. When there is a managerial change like that, like you said, there some staff leaves, different manager, they don't want to have to learn kind of a, a tweaks to the new system or, or whatever. They also, that new manager is probably recruiting some people from around town that they know that they feel like they can trust and are reliable or talented to kind of bring in. So- is there an influx of kind of movement in a city's restaurant industry when kind of chefs start moving, managerial starts changing? Like, does that kind of like the opportune time for people to, well, I wanted to experience something else. I've been here for like a year, year and a half. Oh, there's a new person over there. Let me see if I can go kind of work over there, see what's going on. Like, is that kind of how it flows? Yeah, I think so. I would say so. I mean, I think change is almost always good and at least some way or another, right? And it, it at least is challenging, if nothing else. But yeah, it's interesting. Nashville, for the most part, a lot of the kind of quintessential Nashville restaurants are fairly stable in their management, I think, for the most part. That's where catch your attention, right? Like when there is a big change like that, that which is a huge change, right? And I think it makes people interested and it puts a lot of pressure on whoever's coming in to fill that position, right? A lot of pressure. It's like all eyes are on them. And all eyes are on that, that team. And I think you, you sort of feel, you feel inclined to, to do as much as you can to help whoever's stepping into that, that position to succeed, right? Because the success of, of chefs is largely, you know, based on their team and the, the people they have around them. It's not so much the, the individual. It is to, to a large extent, but not, not necessarily. So I think that sort of, that change allows you to feel sort of more a part of, or that's what it was for me. I felt like it was a, it was an opportunity help be a part of something bigger than myself. And so eventually you become the director of fermentation there. How does that happen? What all does that job entail? I've been there for about six months, maybe. I started as a prep cook and I was a prep cook for maybe like two weeks. And then they pulled me on the line and, you know, it was all, all over from there and there on out. But I worked the line for five months or so and, you know, did well. And that was a kitchen that I, I felt like I, it felt very natural. Cooking there was very natural for me. Cooking on, on with the fires and, and, you know, having all this produce that we had from amazing produce from local farmers and beef from Bear Creek Farm and all these, all these different things. It was very easy. It was very natural for me to cook there. And it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun cooking there. And I think I sort of grew very, very quickly, um, exponentially there. I've always been obsessive about cooking ever since i made the decision to cook for a living it's just been an absolute obsession it's all i can think about um when i'm at work when i'm away from work all i think about is food and cooking and, and just constantly it's like a hamster wheel you know in my head i was spending a lot of time i don't know if i should say this or not but i was spending a lot of time at husk um i'll just say i was spending a lot more time at husk than 
I should have been spending there, right? Uh, I was there on my quote unquote days off. I was just at Husk a lot. I, they couldn't get rid of me, right? Like if, if when my shift was over, I didn't want to leave. Uh, I wanted to stay there and work on projects. Husk was also a restaurant that, which most restaurants are, there was always, always something to do, right? There was always something to be done. We were never, there was never just everything was done for the day. It just rolled over to the next day. Um, and it was strongly encouraged that, that the, the cooks and the, the sous chefs worked on projects, right? While we were there, like different fermentation projects or, you know, you're free to do like R&D for the menu if you wanted. I spent a lot of time as a cook there um, trying to learn how to preserve um, this bounty that we had because Katie Koss had really great relationships with the farmers. I think she cared a lot about the farmers that we had. And so she would buy, you know, if they had an abundance of, of turnips or whatever, people weren't buying turnips, she would buy all the turnips from the farmers just to help the farmers out. And then it's like, well, fuck, what do we do with all these fucking turnips? You know, so it was always kind of a challenge to figure out what to do with the, the excess produce or scraps that we had. And it was something that was really interesting to me as well. You know, how do you best make use of, of what you have in the most responsible way? Um, I think it was always interesting that it's really from the beginning when I started cooking and, and I had done a lot of that at Butcher and Bee as well. Um, we had a, a large pickle fermentation program at Butcher and Bee and then going to Husk, they also just a huge, huge preservation program. And Nate Leonard, the previous executive chef, he did a lot of the fermentation preservation at the restaurant. I think he was really largely the driving force behind that. He worked really closely with Sean and uh, they did a lot of things, you know, the, the way Sean grew up doing them and, and in different ways that they, they learned and explored, you know, how to do that the best way. So after Nate left, there was kind of this hole or this gap that needed to be, be filled as far as that, that part of the restaurant went. Um, and I remember Sam Jett, who at that time was the, he was the culinary director for all of neighborhood dining groups. So all the Husks, Monero, all those different restaurants. He came, he was there one week, hanging out for the week. And Sam is also just a genius when it comes to uh, preservation and fermentation. He's a very knowledgeable individual. Um, and I sat down and talked to Sam and expressed a lot of my interest in that and, you know, kind of had some different things that I had made and let him try them. And I think Sam kind of pushed Katie to, to have me fill fill that position for the restaurant because it didn't it really did need someone to fill that position and to, to make use of what we had so that's kind of more or less how it came about and a, a lot of that like i said was just trying to utilize all this at the excess uh vegetables and protein and kitchen scraps i remember i would, would keep like five gallon buckets all around the line so people as they were doing the prep for service would throw all their scraps in and then i would get gifted these five gallon buckets of disgusting uh waste that I, I got to try to make into something delicious the bar as well i remember the bar used to juice tons of vegetables beets and carrots and all these different things for um their bloody mary mix and then they would give me the, the pulp out of the juicer and their scrap and i would make an amino sauce with um koji that we would grow there we would grow koji with different sort of heirloom um, grains that were indigenous to the region um, and then would ferment the bar's Bloody Mary scraps with the koji, and then I would give that product back to the bar, and they would season their their Bloody Marys with the Bloody Mary scrap, which was, we thought was pretty cool. But it was just a, um, I don't know, it was kind of, I just, my job was just to find ways to use things that we didn't know how to use, basically. Fermentation, for the most part, just kind of trial and error. 
just kind of throw stuff together and figure out, well, is this going to work? Is it not? I think 10 years ago, it was very much that way. I think now, I hate to say thanks to Noma. Everyone, Noma's incredible, but I, and they have done a lot for, for this, um, for the industry and the, the Noma guide to fermentation that became all that information became so readily accessible to every person in the world, right? And it is very comprehensive. It's not the end all be all of fermentation, but that one book alone has so much knowledge in it. Um, we had a lot of resources before that book came out. Um, Jason White, who is the director of fermentation at Noma, or he was the uh, assistant, David Zilber was the director, but Jason was highly involved in the fermentation program at Noma and Sam Jett knew Jason and had some communications with him. So we had this sort of wealth of, of knowledge and resources from Noma before that book came out that we got to use. And also, yes, yeah, trial and error. You know, a lot of it is, is not, you know, people have been doing it for thousands of years, thousands of years. Vinegar has been a, a, around as long as, as fruit is a naturally occurring. You just leave fruit to do its thing, the yeast and the air, that you'll end up getting vinegar at some point. You'll get some other gross things too if you don't control it, but you'll get some booze and you'll get vinegar. And you know, I think it's just kind of using the resources you have available. Um, there's tons of knowledge of it out there. Sean and, and Nate had a really good program. So we had a lot of uh, information readily available when I filled that position. And it was something that I had experimented with a lot too prior to that. I think it's trying to kind of get outside of, okay, this is how you make miso with beans and, and koji, and you have just white miso or red miso. I think that's like the base, right? And then the trial and error part comes into expanding on that. And well, what if we use, what if we use cornbread instead of beans and this, how, what would that be like? Right. So we just use these techniques and these processes and kind of plug different inputs into the, here, the process. And that's the trial and error part of it. And I think that's the fun part. Uh, but is using these these sort of base techniques and these base methods that have been around, like I said, for thousands of years, and trying to make those work for what you have available, right? Because we don't we didn't get a lot of soybeans in us. They grow soybeans in in Tennessee, but not primarily for eating, more for for fuel and whatnot. But do you still mess around with fermentation projects now, or is that something that you do a little bit of, but not as much as you once did? No, I still. Definitely, um, lean heavily on fer fermentation. I still love it. I think it's, it's become less of a, a novelty as it used to be 10, 20 years ago. I think it, it in a lot of kitchens and um, for a lot of chefs, it's just another tool in the box. It's like having great produce. It's like producing your own butter or doing these things. It's just a, another tool in the arsenal. So I do definitely lean, lean heavily that, that, you know, for me, when I, I cook, I really like being able to use product that's at absolute best as far as seasonality and maybe seasoning it with itself from a past season, like seasoning strawberries with the strawberry vinegar from the year before, whatever that might be. So I, I think fermentation is extremely useful because it allows you to use waste or scrap products um, like I did a lot of husk that otherwise would end up in compost or in the trash, be able to make something delicious out of it and utilize it to its full extent, but also to be able to have produce products that is in a really delicious form far outside of its season. And that's where I find the usefulness in it, I believe. What's like the weirdest thing you've ever fermented? Deer penises. Did that turn out all right or? Disgusting. Garbage. This is trash. It's so gross. What's the best thing that's like come out of one of the fermentation projects that you've done? 
Oh, man. One of my favorites was a vinegar um, that I made at Husk. We were trying to sort of figure out how we could make a balsamic vinegar that was not made from grapes. And we didn't have grapes at that time. The basic cider vinegar that we had, and I used uh, roasted barley koji. The barley koji was from proper sake um, in Nashville from Byron Stitham, but roasted the barley koji. So it got really, really caramelized, really dark, kind of malty notes. And it was that and oak chips. And for whatever reason, however it turned out, I don't know why it turned out the way it did, but it was so reminiscent of balsamic when it was done. It was really amazing. Uh, it was like thick and syrupy the way, way balsamic is from, I'm sure from the, from the koji. That was a really good one. I don't know. There's been so many, man. It's, it's, a lot of them are really yummy, uh, but that was a cool one for me. That was the, our version of balsamic at that time. So I think next stop for you after Husk is the peninsula, right? So how did you kind of wind up going over there for a bit? Yeah, so peninsula, I think at that time, peninsula had been open for maybe a year, maybe two years. It was still fairly new. It was a restaurant that was very popular with the industry folks in Nashville and people from out of town. It was kind of like a really well-kept secret. Um, it was not a super crazy, busy restaurant. You got a lot of industry people in there. Every time that I ate there, the food was phenomenal. Super interesting to me. Jake Howell, the chef there, cooks food that I have never tasted before in my life. I've still never tasted food that tastes like Jake Howell's food does. They made a post that they were hiring. I'd been at Husk for, I don't know, a year or so. Um, but the thing with Peninsula was at that time, there were only two chefs in the kitchen. There were no prep cooks, no line cooks. It was Jake and one other cook, maybe two other people, but very, very small kitchen. And so therefore there were not, there weren't many openings there. They weren't hiring, you know, new staff every month and have people leaving and coming and going. And so it just seemed like a really good opportunity when that presented itself. And it seemed like an opportunity that would be, you know, wasn't going to be an easy place to, to get into a year later or whatever, if I wanted to. So I sent Jake an email and got coffee with him and, and met and talked. And that was, Largely the hiring process was just talking to Jake and, you know, seeing if we, cause it was, you know, it's such an intimate space. You're sharing a hundred square feet of a kitchen with someone, you know, all day, every day. Um, and I did a little tasting for him too, made a few dishes to see if, um, they would be something that would kind of jive and, and it made sense. And, and it did. So I ended up, yeah, coming on board Peninsula it was me, Jake and Nick. Nick was the, uh, were three of us at the time when I came on. The restaurant or the menu is kind of labeled at that time is kind of modern Spanish French, but really it seems like when you kind of read through it, it's kind of just all over the place, like whatever creative thing they felt like putting on the menu. So was that by design? Was that intentional? Oh, this kind of fits with what we want to do, or this is something that we developed and we're really proud of it, or it seems cool. Like let's put it on the menu kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to speak for Jake, but I think, you know, everything has to have a label can be marketable. And that was a good label to have. And he, there, there was a lot of influence from that, that sort of the Iberian Peninsula, right? We would use lots of, you know, almonds and these, uh, olives and exceptional olive oils and, um, anchovies and these different ingredients from that, that region and a lot of French technique, a lot of really, really good technique there. Cooked lots of awful, um, lots of the kind of gross parts of animals that nobody, you know, wanted to buy. So I think a, a lot of the, the base techniques and sort of driving underlying forces from that region. But, you know, ingredient, we, we cook whatever we wanted to, right? Like we didn't limit ourselves to just that one area, right? It was kind of like the inspiration and the starting point. And then it was whatever else 
we wanted to throw in there that made sense and was delicious and, and, you know, fit Jake's style of cooking we would use as well. So I think after the peninsula, you wind up kind of doing some development work when Sean Brock was getting ready to launch the menu at the Continental and open in Joyland and everything. So when you agree to kind of be a part of that development team, how hard is that to work on somebody else's menu around a concept and vision that isn't yours? Like they can communicate what they want and what they're looking to do. It's still not like second nature because it's not your vision. It's not in your head. So like how difficult is that to kind of balance that and figure that out? Luckily for me, I was involved with Joyland from its inception before it was a restaurant and with Continental. I did some development. I didn't do a ton of of stuff for me. It was one of those kind of like Husk where everyone was encouraged to give their input and their feedback. So there was sort of this structure that was in place and that we were creating day by day. So it was kind of each day we would try to improve a little bit on our structure, our, our techniques, um, processes. So at that time, it was very much a sort of a collaborative effort, I think, for most of the staff. John is, is a hard person to work for. He's very picky. He knows exactly what he wants in his head, right? Before it ever exists, he knows exactly how he wants things to be, which is incredible. But it's, it certainly is challenging to, to make that into fruition for sure. But yeah, it was a very collaborative. It was, a, it was a lot of fun, man. Opening Joyland was opening a fast food restaurant using really good ingredients is really hard to do, man. It's, it's the McDonald's and Burger King and these places like people, I don't think realize what a well oiled machine those places are that they, you know, how do you create a restaurant where you can hire, you know, Joe Blow off the street and he can walk in on his birthday and be able to execute everything perfectly. Like getting those systems in place was was really challenging. And Sam Jett left Neighborhood Dining Group and was he became the director of operations for that project too. But we also had, at that time when I was still with that company, we had just an absolute bang up team um, of chefs from around the country, from 11 Madison Park, from, from Smith and Chicago, from Single Thread Farms, we had Jason White from Noma. We had all these incredibly talented people that were giving their input and being able to help create this thing. It was really weird to flip burgers with Jason White in the corner, and you know, the original head chef from Smith is dropping fries in the fryer, and you know, it's just bizarre. It was a really, really fun time, a really unique experience. So then, I think after that, you wind up uh, getting an executive chef job at Hathorn. Did you go somewhere before that? Yeah, before that, Joyland Continental, I did a, a pop-up series for a little while titled Hester um, after my grandmother. So that was, uh, it's always been a challenge for me because I love learning from other people, but I also always have felt like I have so much I want to give as well, so much, so many things that I want to make and share with people, right? And so doing Hester was kind of an opportunity to share my food for one of the first times, because it was not, you know, I wasn't limited to any restaurant pathos or, or, you know, what they wanted to do. I could do whatever I wanted to do. And so that was a, we had several pop-ups of them. I can't remember all the places that we did, but they were all, we got a lot of good feedback from people. It was, was well-received in Nashville. Um, and the last pop-up that I did as Hester was at Bastion in Nashville is one of strategic hospitalities restaurant ran by Josh Habiger. And so I did the pop-up at Bastion. It was a two-night two night deal, kind of a collaborative menu between mine and their food. And afterwards, Josh sat down with me. He was like, hey, man, you know, we've got a 
one of our guys is leaving the next couple of weeks. Um, we've been looking for someone to fill fill his position, and it seemed like a really great fit. You know, Bass and I actually go back in time a little bit. Um, when I was at Butcher and B, after, and this is again, keep in mind, like six months into cooking in a professional kitchen, I staged at Bastion and it was, uh, probably the most pivotal, inspirational experience that I've had in the kitchen because it was at that, that time to me was just such this high level Bastion's, uh, um, tasting menu restaurant. They have a, a counter, a little chef's counter. So you're sitting and cooking, you know, a foot and a half from each guest. And the food, to me, the food was, it was just mind blowing. I, I couldn't wrap my head around how they were making food like this. I'd never seen food like they were making there before. <clears throat> so dodging there was just really, um, really inspirational to me, really, uh, I don't want to say life changing, but it, it was in, in a large way. So fast forward a few years later and I, um, was given the opportunity to work there and it was, Bastion had always been sort of this dream job for me in Nashville, right? I, I'd always really looked up to, to Josh and the team that he always had there. Um, so I was super excited to come on board there and ended up taking that job at Bastion after, after doing Hester for a little while. So with the pop-up then, cause I thought the pop-up came after Hathorne. So when you're doing the pop-up, like you said, you know, it's the first time you kind of get to cook your own food. Was it just kind of a, you wanted to see where it would go or was it the early stages of, if I get to open my own restaurant one day, this is kind of what I'm thinking kind of format. Did you have an end goal with it or was it just exploratory? I, yeah, I think it was largely was exploratory. I think it, it, I, I really wanted to break. Uh, at that point in time, I was really getting burnt out working in restaurants and working for other people. And I really wanted to take a break from that. Knew I would come back to it. Um, when At the time I was doing the pop-ups, I was working as a drug and alcohol counselor for adolescents um, as my full-time job. I'm in recovery and been I guess, in and out of recovery since I was probably 16 years old. Uh, from a really early age. And so I was doing that on the side, which was really, really regenerative for me, fed my soul and gave me life and energy back, you know, to help help these kids. Um, and I was doing the pop-up on the side, I think A, just as a break from cooking for other people, B, as uh, again, just to sort of test the waters and see if people liked my food, you know, like kind of to prove to myself that I could cook food that doesn't suck. You know what I mean? Um, so it was largely just to yeah, just to see where I was at, see what people thought of, of the food that I made, um, share it with people. And just as an outlet for creative, I talked about that hamster wheel on my head earlier. And it, it just really like, man, I just think about cooking and, and food and, and everything involved and farming and all these different things constantly. And so Hester was just a, a big outlet for a lot of my my energy that I had not being in a kitchen. You know, I, I had to cook and make food somehow still, you know, and definitely as a, you know, maybe a trial run if you, you could say for for a brick and mortar right having that affirmation that people like my food and you know it's well received and okay i'm able to do these things these are areas that i need to work on you know learning how to how to teach people all these sorts of things yeah largely exploratory but also just a an outlet for all the crap that goes on in my head so then from the pop-up you go to bastion so you're at bastion for a while then what happens yeah, I was at Bastion for uh, a year or so. Left Bastion and went to Hathorne. Was at Hathorne. Was at Hathorne super long. It was a good experience. I think. I think the owner and myself both had kind of difference in, in views on on food, and we both cooked different things. And 
you know, it was one of those things that, you know, it seemed like it would be a really good fit for both of us. And then practical application, not the best fit. I'd hired a, a CDC uh, when I came on board, hired a new CDC, Chris Gass. Um, Chris was amazing. Uh, he did a bang up job. I think it made a lot more sense for Chris to stay in the executive chef position there. I think it was a lot more up his alley than it was mine. And so I left and Chris stayed and Chris was there for, uh, I, I want to say the better part of two years, maybe eight, maybe just a year, year and a half, but he ended up staying and doing a, a really good job. So after that, then what? Like eventually you wind up in New York, right? So was that just you wanted to? explore a different city, a different food scene. You know, you've kind of been in Nashville for a number of years at that point. You've worked at probably every place that pretty much you wanted to work at or, or close to it. So was it that aspect or just kind of a reset for you or, or what led to New York and eventually kind of where you're at now, Texas? Largely, like you said, I had pretty much worked everywhere that I wanted to in Nashville. And I was like, man, nothing, none of the options that I had really made a lot of sense. I didn't have the ability to start a restaurant, you know, that was, was not a really an option at the time. And I still had and still have a lot that I, I want to learn and, and explore before, before that happened. But yeah, so that was, it would have been about a year and a half ago. Uh, my personal life at the time, um, things were kind of wonky. I had a, a really bad breakup that was really difficult for me and just a lot of difficulties in my, own personal life at that time and nothing made sense to do in Nashville. Um, I ended up getting to a really, really kind of low, dark place. Actually, just, I just didn't know what to do with my life. I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, and just felt really lost. And so I moved to New York just as, as a new star. I'd never been to New York, but moved to New York. I had a couple friends in New York, which was nice, um, to have some people there that I knew and just, I absolutely love the city. Really, really beautiful city. Um, I had a lot of fun in New York. It was a really challenging for me as well, right? Like I said, having grown up in a city of 2,500, 3,000 people, we had two stoplights in the city. Nashville, when I moved to Nashville, that was, was the equivalent of me recently moved in New York. Like Nashville was like, man, this just humongous, massive city. And so when I moved to New York, it was, it was largely the same thing. It was a huge culture shock, a lot of that anxiety, but it was just so beautiful, man. I really fell in love with that city um, and had a lot of fun while I was there. A reset, inspiration, just that I just needed a change of scenery. I felt like I didn't have any options left in Nashville. And, and you know, I'd never worked in a Michelin star restaurant before. The guy doesn't exist in Nashville. And I, I knew, had friends that had and, and knew people that, that had worked in, in two and three one star restaurants. And I was really curious what, what the difference in in a restaurant like that was versus restaurants that I had I had worked at. And so I before I moved to New York, I staged at Smith in Chicago and had a blast at Smith and then went to New York um, and was at Oscar in New York. And it was really a good learning experience, man. It was really eye-opening for to see what all goes into running a restaurant of that caliber. Yeah. So I was in New York for for the better part of, of last year, I guess. What led to you kind of deciding to make your way out to Texas from New York? I mean, New York is, as so many people say, it's a it's a place where very few grow up there in terms of like being born, raised, and, and staying there their entire life. But there's a lot of people that you eventually kind of reach a point where you need to you know leave New York before kind of New York chews you up and spits you out in a way kind of thing. So what led to deciding to go to Texas? 
So I was born in Fort Worth, Texas. I, my family relocated when I was really young. Maybe I was an infant, but I have a lot of memories of, of, of being here as a kid. Uh, I've always had a lot of family here, kind of go back and visit throughout the summer. But my mother and some other family had some um, health issues going on. They need a little bit of help. I felt like, again, just it, 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 was, it would be a good experience to kind of re- continue to reset. We need to get grounded and sort of figure out exactly what direction I want, wanted to continue in. So I came out and it would just be a break. I felt like it would be an easier, not easier in the sense of not wanting to do something hard, but just a, a break from what I was doing. So I came out here to help some family and, and uh, spend some time with them. Decade, I haven't got to spend much time with family at all. You know, I could probably count on on one hand, you know, how many times I've, I've gotten to see my family um, the last 10 years. So it's been really amazing. Even as a kid, man, you know, I, I did, you know, I was always kind of doing my own thing. I had a lot of struggles um, and challenges um, in my childhood, in my adolescence, um, and wasn't around family a lot. Even if I was there, I wasn't really there. You know what I mean? So it's been good to sort of have that the opportunity to sort of not only say make up for lost time, but just to try to be here when they need me, right? Um, so yeah, so I've been out here cooking Mexican food and looking at cows, and <laughs> it's been cool, man. I have a um, when I grew up, we had a, a on and off the different places we lived, but we often had a farm. Uh, we raised quail for a little while. We always had a little garden. My grandmother always had lots of flowers and these sorts of things. So I always grew up around agriculture in some way or another. And when I moved out here, it was a big goal of mine um, to have kind of my dream garden that I always wanted to have that, you know, living in, in Nashville, I always lived in an apartment. I never had, I always had a little, you know, little herb garden or whatever, but I have never had proper um, vegetable garden. So a huge backyard here um, and have just this amazing garden that I spend pretty much all day, every day working in the garden it has been really, really good for me to kind of have that connection with food too, because I, Frederick Borsellius said in an interview one time, he, he said basically, most people generally have no idea where food comes from. And I think that is, is largely true, right? Like it doesn't grow behind Walmart, you know, they, they just don't know where it comes from. And, and even growing up on a farm and all that, you know, that farming is a lot different from gardening and organic gardening is a lot different than you conventional gardening and uh, the fully organic garden I'm making all my own compost and trying to do things as, as responsibly and sustainably as i can without using you know pesticides and all these different things and it's, it's such a challenge every day is a challenge like i find something that's getting attacked by slugs or whatever and you know there's always a, it's constantly problem solving which i didn't realize ignorantly i didn't realize that was what this was going to turn into there's just a lot of problem solving gardening is i feel like but it's been a lot of fun, man. It's been a lot of fun having this garden for the last, I think, I guess I've been here for maybe six months or so I've been out here. But yeah, so that's what, what I'm doing right now. I'm just gardening and, and cooking Mexican food and having a lot of fun doing it. So do you think, you know, you'll eventually go back into restaurants and, and run a restaurant? Or do you think that'll be in Texas or potentially somewhere else that you've never kind of worked before? Doing all this reflection and and kind of self-analyzation that you've done over the past, probably since COVID, like so many people, where do you think your direction's headed? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you know, I ask myself that a lot right, every day. Definitely went up back in restaurants. You know, I just did a pop-up October at Nonesuch um, in Oklahoma City. And it was such a blast. I had a really good time with the team there. 
that was an eye-opening experience. You know, Oklahoma City, state of Oklahoma. I don't know if you realize this, but there's not a lot of fine dining in in that state. No, I've been there. There's not much in Oklahoma City outside of like kind of the Riverwalk area. So then when you see something like Nunsuch or uh, there's another place, I think Sedalia, there's like a couple places and you're just like, how is this here and why? And like, obviously you want it to stay and, and thrive and everything and, and everybody needs a place like that. But the when you find those kind of really awesome restaurants in these mid-sized cities, you just kind of scratch your head and you're like, how did it wind up here? Like, what's the story kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. agree 100%. And I, I think knowing the staff at Nunsuch and, and kind of the origin of that that restaurant, I think that's just like pure passion, some person's passion for, for what they do and for where they grew up at, right? Like I've thought like the town that I grew up in, how wild would it be to try to open, you know, a fine dining restaurant there? Because a lot of people... It's not, it's no fault of their own, but there's just better now. There's more exposure, but so many people have no idea what fine dining looks like either. Like they think that, you know, Ruth's Chris is like the fanciest, best, most proper restaurant that exists. Like that's their, it was really eye opening uh, seeing what they were doing in Oklahoma with their terroir, that everything that that they serve comes from Oklahoma. I mean, it's so hyper local. But I mean, you, you, locality in, in restaurants is like, it's almost a given. Now I feel like it's kind of like the farm to table thing. Like everybody is working with farmers for the most part, you know, every independent restaurants, they're working with farmers and they're sourcing things locally, but it, nothing like the left, even when I was at HUD, nothing like what they were doing in Oklahoma. I mean, if it doesn't grow, if they can't get it within 50 miles of the restaurant, like they're not not serving it, which is very challenging to do, um, especially, you know, some things have really short seasons. Sometimes you just like all that's growing is lettuce. Like that's the only thing that can grow. And so they use a lot of preservation uh, techniques as well. Lots of fermentation and pickles and things um, as they have them and tuck them away for, for when they don't have anything, which I really enjoy that style of cooking. It's resourceful and it's thoughtful and it's challenging and it, it's sustainable. And so it was really cool, man, seeing what they were doing there. And I thought about that a lot. Like even being in Texas, I thought, you know, the reason I'm not working, really working in a restaurant here is there's there's nothing, very little that exists out here is the style of food and the kind of restaurant sort of thoughtfulness that I'm accustomed to, that I enjoy. There are some awesome restaurants, uh, Austin, Dallas, really awesome restaurants. Uh, like I said, there's nothing that, that really piques my interest as far as what I, I would like to do. And I think about would that be something um, worth entertaining, trying to open a restaurant out here um, and kind of feel like as a chef, you sort of this responsibility to give exposure to, to fine dining, to whatever sort of food you cook, right? Like it's your responsibility to share that, right? It's, it's not just for you. New York City doesn't need another, you know, two or three Michelin star restaurant. They don't need it. You know, that's not, there's no reason to open a restaurant there. Unless you just love the city, I guess. I, bet the mo- I think the most responsible thing to do as a chef now is to open a restaurant, maybe somewhere where they, they're, it doesn't exist, right? And share it with a, uh, a group of people and kind of spread this idea of what, what we do for a living with, with other people. So I've, I've considered that a bit. I actually talked with, uh, kind of become friends with the old executive chef from Nunsuch named Corey, uh, Corey Orsburn. You know, he really wants to open he's talked about trying to open like some, some sort of school or, you know, to, like teach people more about fine dining. I think it's really cool as well. 
Yeah, I don't know, man. I've been thinking a lot about what, obviously, like, I, I love Chicago. I love New York. I would love to be back there. Uh, I had a lot of fun in Nashville, you know, but there's a lot of other places in the world, even outside the country that I, I've thought about entirely sure what, what I'm going to do next, to be honest. But I try to take it day by day. You know, I, I make definitely make plans and have goals and would love to see Hester as a brick and mortar restaurant one day in the near future. But it's like, you know, there's a lot that goes into, you have a lot of responsibility as a chef as far as what the best thing to do is. And like I said, you know, some places that they just don't need another restaurant like that. And there's a lot of places that I think people would be really receptive to kind of food that I cook. And it might be something that doesn't exist there yet. I think uh, the next stage, you know, is farm to table. And then it was kind of partnering with different farms. Like it seems like the next stage as farms kind of go away is for restaurants to almost start their own farm or have an exclusive partnership with a farm that just kind of custom grows whatever they want or looking for and have kind of that situation, you know, outside of like having your window boxes on your fence for like herbs and, and all that stuff, but like actually growing like specific things and, and having this almost like supply chain that is just exclusive. You know, you look at like single thread farms does it where they have their own farm and they're making a bigger farm now and other different restaurants that kind of do it. But that seems like that's kind of the next iteration, but, but then to also follow up, like to have a restaurant in a location that's not used to having something of that style is I think, yeah, you're right. Like a lot of people are going to start looking towards doing that. The one major hurdle is like the economies of scale where it's, you know, if you're in New York, it's a lot easier to get anything that you want. Like you can have flown in from Japan, whatever you wind up in kind of this mid to small size city. And, you know, maybe they got a couple interesting restaurants there. It's how do you find the ingredients that you need to execute what you want to execute? And that I think is like the biggest thing where everybody kind of looks around and is like, okay, how am I going to pull this off? And how can I pull this off? So it lasts five, six, seven years and isn't just like one or two years. And like, then we're kind of done because it just, we couldn't keep it going kind of thing. I agree hundred percent, you know, the dinner at Nonsuch kind of planned the menu, which I, typically I, I, I don't plan things out and uh, plan menus out day by day, week by week, whatever we have, you know, whatever comes to mind, we'll, we'll get it in or, or whatnot. But we kind of planned that menu. And then it was like, it kind of came down to it. And we were like, oh, shit, man, like, we can't it's really hard to get some of this stuff, it, you know, just because of the location. And like, it, it is, it really is, you know, I, I even like sourcing, try to like, source some stuff for it myself. And it's just so expensive to source things, places like that. And I think that's when, you know, you have to make a decision of like they have and have done very well. Like we either are going to cook what we have available right here. And, uh, you know, it, it's what we have to offer. Either like it or you don't, you know, we're not going to, you know, buy, you know, shipping caviar and fish from Japan and, you know, put truffles on everything. And as much as I love those things so much, you know, I, I love cooking with it's sort of luxury ingredients and they're delicious. And, um, you know, I like that kind of food, but I also really appreciate food that's more humble in a way. It's more challenging to challenge yourself. I think it takes a, you have to be willing to, to sacrifice some things in a way. Um, if you want to look at it as sacrificing, you know, these sort of ingredients to do something like that. Um, and then it really does, like you're saying, having your own farm and stuff. I think, uh, Dan Barber with, uh, Blue Hill at Stone Farm is one of the most important chefs in the world really right now. I think what he's doing as far as his research on on vegetables and, and produce and farming and sustainable, responsible farming and the food that he serves is 
is I, I don't want to say it's simple food, but I think I've heard him say it's simple food. So I'm going to say that it, it's it's gorgeous food that really highlights what they're able to grow and highlight sort of all the advancements they've made. Like Row Seven Seed partnership with him, they sell these uh, all really amazing uh, vegetables that they've sort of created that are are just they're phenomenal. They're so good. I think at some point, like at some point, it's it's not going to make sense to for everywhere to serve caviar and truffles and you know fish from Japan and all this imported stuff. Like in a way, I think it makes those things less special when they're everywhere. I think a lot of people have a misconception that if you put caviar on on something, it's automatically like a delicious, awesome you know dish, and that's not at all the case. You just have to be able to kind of accept the challenge to cook with what you have to think about what can be grown there. You know, that was a big thing they talked about none such as it's not so much what grows in Oklahoma so much as what can grow in Oklahoma because there's a lot of, you know, some things that are native to Oklahoma and, you know, foraging. I, I really enjoy foraging things and we get to forage a lot uh, when I was there for the dinner and used a lot of a lot of resources that, that just grow naturally in the wild there. And I think there's so much of that everywhere that people don't realize how many different plants and herbs and vegetables and you know, different woods and stuff is just available without cultivation, you know, that you can kind of tap into. And I think that's when you, you start tasting food that's that's interesting and, and unique and different is when it you're using what's available and you're not sourcing, you know, stuff from all over the world. You source things from from everywhere. You have these restaurants that like the food just all tastes the same because they're getting all the same products from everywhere. They're seasoning everything the same vinegars and they're using the same, these really great products, but everybody's using the same things. And it's like, that's not, not very interesting. It's not very challenging, it's more challenging to use what you have available without bringing a lot of stuff in. And I think also too, you know, especially in like the fine dining sector or even just elevated dining like you kind of touched on, it can become, I think the word is formulaic where, oh, there's this thing with caviar on it, then this thing has truffles and da, 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 da. And you can just see the menu in your head right now. And you're like, okay, like it's probably all going to taste great, but it's like, what's unique aside from, all right, you have all these expensive ingredients, or maybe there's some things that are hard to find, but if it's all just kind of the same, you could find it four or five, six other restaurants around, you know, the country that are in that same kind of category or whatever, like what's the point kind of in a way, like, I guess from, you know, a consumer perspective, you know, you run into that probably, I would say in like, like I remember Las Vegas, right? Like Guy Savoy has a restaurant there and it's like, you could basically predict the entire menu. Like it was, did everything taste great? Sure. But it was also a very boring experience. It was very kind of lifeless. I felt um, somebody who, probably disagree with that but it was just like you knew all the steps that they were going to hit and so it was kind of just like okay yeah no totally totally and that's that, you know for me that's like the antithesis of what i want my food to be i agree with you 100 percent. and you know social media i think has has been been one of the the best things for our industry as far as exposure and as far as um, resources be able to learn things from people you know at, at literally at your fingertips um, but it's also been death of cooking, I think, because it's like food stylists and all these things that are just like, sometimes you'll see a dish or I'll, I'll see a dish and like, I can just look at it and know that it tastes like shit. It looks gorgeous and it's pretty and it has all these, you know, flowers and stuff on it. But like, I know it fucking tastes gross. I think a lot of people don't know that. And they look at all this bad cooking, bad food, and they think that 
that that's what amazing food is and it's not and it's just so easy to it's like to fool people in in a way into to to thinking that and again it goes back to what i said like that if you put caviar and truffles on something like it's delicious and it's not it's you're just wasting caviar and truffles on things and people get kind of copy things they see off of social media and put it on their menu and and a lot of people love it that's the other thing man a lot of people like bad food a lot of people like bad cooking they think it's great terrifying and I, i hate that and i think that kind of goes back and like your responsibility as a chef show people what good cooking actually is the weird thing is like on the other side of that too is there'll be people that see something or or see a post or whatever and they're like well that's not good and like you get it in in anything that winds up on social media but it's like you'll get people that are just super critical or negative or whatever i mean that's just generally social media i guess but that's not good or whatever this thing is is bad it's like but why like okay that's like if you don't everybody's teach their own like you don't like this thing okay but why you can't just be like i don't like it why you don't like it because of the flavor profile you didn't like it because of the execution you didn't like it because of the atmosphere like what was the reason that this to you is bad you have to take it one step further than just putting something on yelp and going like i don't like this this is bad the context matters and i think that gets lost too as well where it's you just get people for whatever reason or whatever that are just like well this thing is wrong or blah blah blah, blah. it's like you can have that opinion but you have to elaborate on that opinion you can't just stop there because then it's just like you're telling me that this thing's bad, but do you know why? It's, like, what makes you the expert on this is good or bad? Because you can't explain to me why this is. So, what would you know? You know, I, I recently saw this really, really good Guatemalan restaurant um, where I'm living now. Absolutely delicious, phenomenal. And I just for I, I don't know why, but I was looking at reviews for the restaurant on on the internet, and they're largely positive. But there was one review that said this is the worst Mexican food I've ever had in my life. And she went on to talk about why it was the worst Mexican food she'd had. And the owners responded were like, well, ma'am, this is not a Mexican restaurant. And it's like, there's so many people like that that just, they just don't know, you know, they just aren't there or they're not willing to learn. And that was just mind boggling to me. That affected the restaurant, affected their, their rating, you know, secret is, is chefs generally, all the chefs I know don't give a shit about Yelp reviews or anything like that because People that are taking time out of their day to write a negative review about a restaurant generally are the worst types of people and they're uneducated and their opinion just doesn't really matter to me. But it does matter when people are Googling restaurants and like, I have a really amazing restaurant and it's it got a three-star rating because idiots are eating there and leaving reviews. You know, I don't know what the, like the reality of it and I don't know what the solution to that is. I think that goes back into like social media and accessibility and the internet and Yelp and these reviews and stuff are like, they have positives and negatives. You know, for sure. I think fortunately we're past the point of Yelp mattering. I think it's kind of the snake that ate its own tail almost kind of in a way where nobody really pays attention to it. I feel like I feel like it's kind of almost fallen off into the abyss of the social media online kind of lexicon or whatever, where, you know, with like Instagram, I don't think people really pay too much attention to the comment section on stuff. Not to say that people don't leave nice comments or anything like that, but it, it's fewer and far between and I think there's a movement where, you know, people are trying to get off social media or reduce the amount that they use it to as well. I mean, I think that all kind of different aspects of kind of the same pie of all that kind of move into a different direction. So it's, it's kind of correcting itself, but it's still weird. There's still just outliers out there too as well. Yeah, for sure. This uh, next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, 
uh, wine director Chris McFall over at uh, Single Thread Farms out in Helmsburg, uh, California there. He left behind a question for you. What are you doing to help change for the better the hospitality industry that you want it to become and you want to see in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, it's a great question. I think you know, we've been talking about that a lot with just as far as like, what's the most responsible thing you can do as a chef? And what are your responsibilities as a chef? Because ultimately, it's not just making food. And I think this time that I've been able to spend gardening and seeing how much work goes into gardening and, and spending time at, at these restaurants that are cooking food that is extremely hyper local. And I think that's something that I, I want to continue to do. And, you know, it's like I was saying, like, is it, does it make more sense to, it doesn't make more sense, but is it the responsible thing to open a restaurant somewhere that doesn't have a restaurant that exists like that there? You know, I think we have to do as much as we can to be sustainable. Right. And I think that's always been a focus that I've had, you know, from, from my time at Butcher and Beef and my time at Husk, like, how can I best make use of the produce that I have and not waste things? You know, so much waste in this world. We throw, as a country, we throw away just so much stuff. And as a chef, that's something that I really, really try to do is to utilize everything that I buy. I only buy as much as I need, you know, for the most part, unless I'm helping a farmer and we're buying their excess overwinter things they can't sell or, or excess vegetables that aren't selling that are going to sit there and ride or that they can't sell at the market. I'm trying to buy everything that I can uh, from farmers that they can't sell. And I really enjoy that. I enjoy the challenge of cooking waste products, if you will, or, or cooking um, less desirable foods. Um, and I, I think through preservation, fermentation, these different techniques of preserving an abundance or an excess of things and being able to use that further down the road. You know, the great thing is if you have able to, to save these waste products, quote unquote, waste products, um, and make something delicious out of them. Later down the road, you have to buy less product. You don't have to, you already have these different things that you can season with. You have you know, different spices that you might've made out of, out of things. And it, it kind of reduces your consumption a little bit down the road, if that makes sense. Trying to limit waste is a huge thing for me. And that, it's a huge thing for a lot of chefs. I see a lot of people, and I think Andy Dubrava does a really incredible job of using utilizing everything. I got to bring him, he was an, he did a pop-up in Austin recently and I got to go down there and kind of do some foraging with him and, and get some stuff that I had here that was growing. He wasn't in town long and drop off some stuff for him. It was really cool seeing how he utilized every part of everything, you know, that, that I gave him. And he does a, a, a tremendous job with that. And I think we have a responsibility to set examples for people. And I think also to make things accessible, like there's no reason why People that are cooking at home can't have a little compost bin set up on their kitchen counter and have a can outside that they can throw stuff in. And I think a lot of our responsibility is to educate people on, on how you sort of do those things. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? What's the most influential meal you've ever had? This next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what's one restaurant you've never worked at or worked with that you'd like to do a guest chef stint at one day? Oh, well, that's a cool one. A lofty goal. Um, but Johnny Sparrow, a restaurant called Reverie, is actually kind of being burnt down and being, being reconstructed now. But I have a lot. Johnny Sparrow worked under John Shields for a long time. And I just have the utmost respect for his cooking. I think his cooking is, is really, really thoughtful. Um, really ingenious. It looks amazing. I haven't had the, the opportunity to eat there yet, but he's one of my, my biggest inspirations. I really admire the food that he's doing there and, uh, the concept behind his restaurant. Yeah. And he also has a bar Spiro, which you can get some like small plates and 
stuff like that too while they're kind of rebuilding reverie which yeah caught fire i think the kitchen caught fire or whatever and they're working on it the we got 10 more kind of last set of questions here for you we ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast so compare and contrast across all the episodes for the listener first question who would you say is the biggest influence on your culinary career your cooking career thus far when you look back on it i would have to say brian weaver and, and chris de jesus uh, from Butcher and Bee, where I, where I started cooking. And yeah, you know, I'm always really grateful that that is where I started cooking. It's such a good environment um, that they created for, for young cooks. They're so eager to teach and to redirect. I think they just do a fantastic job with the way they run kitchen and what, how I aspire to. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Offset spatula restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own so you know you're in kind of the dallas fort worth area so scenario i usually give is person gets trapped at the airport overnight flights canceled they can't get out to the following day they reach out to you you know hey where should we go eat you point them in this direction say emmer and rye and emmer and rye also does a really good job their fermentation program is expansive they they do a really great job utilizing the produce that they buy as well i have a lot of respect for for what they do there Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So place you have not visited yet, you still want to get to, and a place you haven't eaten at, but you still want to dine at one day. Copenhagen, it would be a tie between Copenhagen and Japan as far as destination restaurant. I would say single thread. I would love to eat at single thread. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? There's been so many. One time I saw a diner who got just absolutely wasted and projectile vomited all through the dining room and then kind of leaned her head back and threw up over her head in an arc onto the guests that were behind her. It was amazing. It was the craziest things I've ever seen. I don't know. It was, it was a talent. She has a talent for the, just the, the link, the distance that she was able to project that it was crazy. Disgusting. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything like fast food, candy, whatever that you know is unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. I'm a sucker for fruit roll-ups. I really like fruit roll-ups a lot. They're pretty good. Really nostalgic. What is the one cookbook you think everyone should own, whether it's a professional chef, home chef, just somebody who enjoys cookbooks or whatever? Like, What's the one that you think is super important that everybody should have? One of my favorite cookbooks is the Franzen cookbook. It came out, I think, two or three years ago. It's a really gorgeous book. A lot of useful techniques um, and sort of, I forget how they title the section, but at the back, it's like, base recipes and there's everything from from different stocks to oils to different powders and it's all sorts of really really useful techniques in that book i really love that book a lot i use it often favorite dish thing you ever cooked created kind of looking back over the course of your career you could point to this as almost like your aha moment like you knew you could be a professional chef one day after you kind of made this one of my favorite of the dessert actually. And it still this day, I think about a lot. It was one of my favorites. And I've, I've made a lot of iterations of, of this dish, but it was um, a little sort of tower. The base was a shortbread kind of crumble flavored with angelica and ice cream and coconut cucumber that was really diced, very small, kind of a brunoise cucumber, this marinade and cucumber juice, and I think mint oil, lime juice. And then on top, when you look down at it, all, all that you saw was this marbled frozen dish of cucumber juice and coconut. It was a really interesting dish, cucumbers for dessert. You know, most people don't associate that, but it was so refreshing. And I've I've kind of, a lot of times when I do a pop-up because I know it's a reliable dish to execute, 
and you can kind of switch out the, the flavors of the disc and the ice cream and stuff. But that was a favorite. That particular iteration of it was a favorite. Cucumber, Angelica, and coconut. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, was there a moment, episode, scene, something that always kind of stands out to you about him? Or if you weren't, is there anybody who is a culinary kind of personality, uh, Emeril, uh, Jacques Pepin, Julia Child, anybody who was on TV that you kind of gravitated towards when you were kind of coming up through your career and getting started? Yeah, I was I was definitely a Bourdain fan. And um, I don't know if I can give you a one particular example, but I think what Bourdain did to make this industry and everything that goes into it to such a vast explorer of, of, of different cuisines, different places, everything from, from highbrow to lowbrow and, and the accessibility and the exposure that he gave the industry just to the general public. And I, I, you know, you can say that about a lot of people, but not, not quite to the extent I think that, that Bourdain was able to do just to really, really, really kind of show people what goes on behind the scenes and everything that goes into this industry, how brutal it can be, how amazing it can be. And yeah, the exposure that he gave, gave to this industry, I think. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Yeah, I'm on Instagram uh, at Matthew.Meeker, one T and Matthew. I, I have Facebook. I don't use Facebook. I haven't been on Facebook. I <laughs> I logged into Facebook. This is like last week. Is that after like a 10-year hiatus and like the first notification I had, it was, it was like a Joel Olstein <laughs> seminar and it was like <laughs> recommended to me. And I was like, I nope, log back out. Yeah, mainly Instagram at Matthew Meeker, Matthew.Meeker. No, this is great. I'm glad we finally got to do this after a couple of reschedules, both of us getting sick and whatnot, various points over the past month or two. So yeah, I definitely wanted to have you on just because of where you're at kind of in your career at this kind of evaluation period. And we don't have a whole lot of people on usually like that. You know, usually they're at a restaurant already and, and, and just kind of going through it. But you're kind of at this point where you can go a bunch of different directions and kind of figuring it out. So Looking forward to kind of whatever that is, whether it's taking over at an existing restaurant or open your own or doing a pop-up again or more guest chef spots and, and chef dinners that you've kind of been doing here or there too. So, you know, we'll be following along and, and hopefully depending on where that is, you know, eventually make it to, to one of the things that you're doing, but always stay in touch. Always an open invitation to return if something to promote or, or whatever. We're always kind of an open platform for anybody that's been on the podcast previously just to help support them as much as we can you know because you guys support us coming on the podcast and, and everything too so but otherwise good luck with the farm enjoy texas hopefully the power stays on for you and uh yeah hopefully we'll see you soon at whatever next thing you kind of pop up at yeah we'll say thank you for all that we'll say in the next one to two months i've been planning a pop-up i don't have the, the location determined between austin and, and dallas um, but I have a friend that's the, uh, who's the AGM at, at Emmer and Ryan Austin, and we've been trying to plan something for this summer. So we'll have something going on in Austin or Dallas. It'll be a lot of fun, whatever it ends up being. So stay tuned for that. Well, thanks so much, man. It was a lot of fun. I'm really glad we could finally make this happen. Uh, thank you, man. Big thanks again to Matthew for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day in between kind of doing some farming stuff and what have you and jumping on and talking about his career and kind of what he's looking forward to next and next steps and all that stuff. So again, you can follow him on Instagram at Matthew.Meeker, Matthew with one T. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com, and then make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast on wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on all the platforms, even YouTube. You can subscribe to the YouTube. YouTube channel there if that's your kind of preferred method on consuming podcasts but 
this was just a cool episode. You know, we've had a lot of wine focused people on recently, and that's just kind of the way it goes with scheduling. It's not intentional or anything like that. I know some people prefer the wine episodes. Some people prefer the chef episodes over the wine episodes first and, and vice versa. So we just kind of reach out to a cluster of people that we're interested in having on and it's whoever responds and we kind of just work with them on what dates work best for their schedule and what dates work best for ours. And uh, that's kind of how it gets coordinated. So sometimes you might have a couple wine episodes in a row and you know we had a string where I think it was like eight or nine chef episodes in a row too as well. So it just kind of works out that way. But we usually try and reach out to a mix of people and just kind of see what comes back. Definitely been, I think, a little bit more wine focused lately. And I think it kind of balances out with the upcoming guests that we have scheduled and, and stuff like that too as well. But yeah, appreciate everybody listening. Um, hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Uh, check out the back catalog log of all the episodes there's 120 some episodes there you can go back and listen to some of the chefs have moved on from the restaurant or that restaurant's closed but we usually reach back out to them when they have something major uh, to come back on and talk about new kind of career steps or career journey part of that and uh you know, we try and get it back on for a quick kind of 15 30 minute episode kind of updating us and what they're doing so we've had a bunch of people on from those so make sure to check those out too as well as always, if you're new, welcome. Uh, if you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. And uh, we will be talking with you guys next week on Thursday. So continue to help spread the word until then. And uh, check out the past episodes if you get a chance. If there's anything you missed. And um, otherwise, new episode next week on Thursday.